Hello and welcome to our podcast. I'm Dr. Mark White, and today I'm going to tell you a story. It's a story about the messy difficulties of diagnosis, professional uncertainty, and what can happen when a problem is viewed through the wrong lens. Today's story is titled The Engineer and Orthopedic Abdominal Pain. Our story begins with an email, a description of a patient in distress from a concerned mother. Her son is an otherwise healthy young man, 30 years old, busy professional. That's why his mother contacted me with his consent. He's a hyper-intelligent engineer from a family of hyper-intelligent professionals, all highly esteemed and accomplished in their respective fields of science and medicine. No prior health or musculoskeletal problems, and no family history resembling what he's experiencing now. Except now has been for the past 10 months. He has a mysterious, constant, lower right abdominal quadrant pain. It's of insidious onset, it's getting worse, and his doctors, plural, cannot figure out what's wrong. Would I be willing to at least render a consultative opinion about this case? Oh, and he lives out of state. And his job, well, he travels internationally, and he can be gone for weeks at a time. It's a well-known absurdity that healthcare knowledge and powers are thought by regulators to mysteriously and inexplicably vanish when crossing state lines. This patient lived halfway across the continent. At least four states were between me and him. This meant a more than quadruple dissolution of my professional capabilities, never mind what the rules say about international vortices that may cause my professional knowledge and skills to vanish in a way similar to how ships and airplanes vanish when crossing the Bermuda Triangle. Still, this was merely a consultation, without any actual treatment by me. Only recommendations. That's permissible. I agreed on one condition. He had to agree that, if finalizing my opinion required his presence in my office, he would schedule an in-person visit. Without hesitation, the agreement was made. Then the deluge began. I received a series of emails, each one detailing various aspects of the numerous tests and procedures this young man had undergone over the past 10 months. It's really more complicated than this, but I'll sum up the highlights. It started with a visit to his family physician. Said physician performed a routine standard exam, but with a few flourishes, and found no splenomegaly, no hepatomegaly, no McBurney's point tenderness indicating acute appendicitis, no abdominal wall rebound tenderness indicating peritonitis, no epigastric tenderness indicating gallbladder problems. He took some blood, tentatively ruled out other visceral disorders, looked over the lab work from the blood, and tentatively ruled out infection. He was stumped. He ordered a plain film x-ray. The x-ray was unrevealing, no lumbar spine issues or visible masses of any kind. Nothing to explain the symptoms. The family physician referred the young engineer for a diagnostic ultrasound. That too was unrevealing. Then, being the engineer that he is and aware of the lengthening timeline with symptoms that might spell doom from a more pernicious source that was not addressed quickly enough, he suggested that perhaps an MRI was in order. His physician agreed. So, that too was scheduled. Meanwhile, arrangements were made for a rheumatology consult. The MRI date came, he was scanned, and the results were frustratingly also unrevealing of a cause of symptoms. More time passed, 
the busy rheumatology schedule couldn't get him in for six more weeks. When he did get in, they took more blood. Rheumatological factors and associated titers also revealed nothing remarkable that might explain the symptoms. However, a more detailed look at the abdominal organs for possible tumors was recommended. A different MRI was ordered, this time with contrast. More weeks went by, the scan was completed, and, just like before, a baffling absence of evidence was revealed for any known cause of this young man's pain. A well-known dictum is that an absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. By now, the young engineer, having pursued the reasonable, data-driven, exhaustive medical approach, was feeling that he was at the end of a very long, expensive rope. Evidence did not indicate that he had a problem. It had effectively ruled out a number of different problems. How likely was it that modern medical science couldn't solve this mystery? It seemed absurd. Medical imaging could literally see through the body, deep inside it, and with great resolution. Blood, biochemical, and other molecularly-based tests can tease a needle out of a haystack of minutia. Still, he and his doctors knew that few tests are definitive. Above all, the patient knew he hurt, his pain was real, and it was getting worse. A roundtable discussion was called. All the medical troops gathered. The risks and benefits of simply waiting this out were weighed. It was decided that more aggressive diagnostic tactics were required. A surgeon was consulted. He suggested that, given the difficulty of establishing a diagnosis with conventional means, a more radical approach was called for. After all, no test is infallible. Just look at the sensitivity and specificity ratings of any medical test. Look at the population probability of having a suspected target disorder that is, for argument's sake, exceedingly rare but still possible, and factor that into the diagnostic equation. What you get is a vanishingly small chance of detecting a causal source of pain because it falls within the margin of error of the test itself. So, maybe what was needed was to perform exploratory abdominal surgery to visually inspect the viscera for a problem. At this point, you may be thinking, that's weird. They've gone too far. That's what mom thought. And that's why she contacted me. And that's how I got involved. After reviewing all the material sent, I gave her a call. We spoke. I agreed with her perspective. Exploratory surgery was absurd. A better choice was simply to examine this problem from a different perspective. One that didn't call for cutting the patient open, poking around inside, and hope to spot something that might not even be visible that could explain his pain. So, we spoke some more. It quickly became apparent that nearly the entire neuromusculoskeletal domain was missing from this case. Relevant questions had not been asked. Within less than two minutes, I was convinced that I had a good working hypothesis about what was responsible for this young man's pain. Mom was astonished. I suggested that we schedule an office visit with her son to confirm a diagnosis. Then we would decide what to do next. Three days later, the young engineer, with mysterious abdominal pain, was in my office. How'd this start? I asked. I don't really know, he said. I've been racking my brain, trying to figure that out for some time. He paused. I wonder if... 
Maybe I play soccer in a club on weekends, mostly. I was running to catch the ball and kick it over to a teammate. A player from the other team was going for the same ball. We both kicked at the same time. So there it was, the mechanism of injury. He described how they both fell down after the collision. Their kicking legs stopped at the ball, but momentum caused him to tumble across the turf. He was initially stunned, hopped up, and continued playing. So did the other player. Two or three days later, he had a vague discomfort in the lower right abdominal region. It was aggravated by climbing stairs, he has stairs at home, getting into and out of his car, and fast walking. He had not returned to soccer. He reported mentioning this to his doctor, but without bruising, swelling, or any immediate severe pain, this had been brushed off as non-contributory. Things got worse from there. The physical exam was deceptively simple. The psoas major muscle attaches to the lesser trochanter of the proximal femur and has multiple attachments to the lumbar spine. It crosses the abdomen. Palpation, contraction, and stretching of this muscle reproduced his pain. There were no other neuromusculoskeletal contributors. My PT diagnosis, psoas major muscle strain, chronically aggravated by ADLs. Deep and misleadingly buried in the abdominal cavity, this muscle was the orthopedic origin of abdominal pain. There was no man-eating disease. The young engineer was grateful to finally have a diagnosis that made sense, especially one empirically supported by in-clinic reproduction of his symptoms. We decided on a home recovery and self-monitoring program that was customized to his needs and lifestyle. He returned home, and three days later, he reported his pain had decreased by half. A week after that, it was completely gone. And in another week, he resumed training for soccer. Time for reflection. The messy difficulties of diagnosis are revealed when the cause of the patient's complaint cannot be determined. If we believe the patient, we are obligated to investigate all reasonable possibilities. But at some point, reasonableness is subjective because we don't have all the answers. A judgment call must be made regarding when to apply the brakes. If a line of investigation does not pan out, stop the car or change lanes. Sometimes you need to take the exit and go down a different path, the one less traveled. But that comes with a catch. Professional uncertainty is the catch. It's easier to stay in your lane, surrounded and comforted by what is familiar. Everyone in healthcare knows that diagnosing problems is a fiendishly difficult process with many overlapping moving parts that interact in endless, complicated ways. Some of these interactions change depending on the individual patient's circumstances and unique health history. Many skilled clinicians make this look easy every day, but it's still difficult. Many more clinicians struggle. Sometimes this struggle conflicts with their identity as an expert. This can cause random sparks of diagnostic ideas to fly off on unrelated tangents. Sometimes, like in this case, the tangents are followed. Faced with this reality, some providers, rather than risk losing face as an expert, continue down the road they are on, even if it ends at a brick wall. What can happen when a problem is viewed through the wrong lens? It depends a lot on who's looking. Imagine looking at the world of possibilities through a soda straw. 
If you are a medical professional, your straw is made of medicine. If you are a specialist in medicine, you risk narrowing your straw, decreasing your field of view to only those things in your domain of expertise that might explain what you're looking at, namely, this young man's pain. As long as your straw is pointed in the right direction, you have a chance of glimpsing the true nature of the problem, if it's there. Point it in any other direction, and things look different. Most often, unintelligibly so. This can lead to false assumptions, unnecessary diagnostic procedures, unnecessary delays in treatment, and worsening problems. I'll leave you with one other example from a different realm. My wife is more than a foot shorter than me. When she looks in the fridge for something, then claims we are out of whatever it is, then I look and find it, there are at least two reasons this happens. One is, I have a different perspective. The other is, she doesn't always remember to look up. Where we stand when we look at a problem matters. Where we look is at least as important as the foundation of knowledge upon which we stand. If, from our vantage point, we don't find what we're looking for, maybe it's as simple as we're not looking in the right place. I'm Dr. Mark White. That concludes our story for now. And, as always, may you and your patients be well. Thanks for listening.